Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers podcast with your hosts, Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics revolving around health, nutrition, and physical fitness. If you enjoy the show and wish to support us, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon but still wish to support us, please also consider checking out our PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPOpod. The link to both of those can also be found in the show notes. Finally, please consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Now, on to the next topic. Recording or not recording? Now we're recording. Yep, now we're up. <laughs> hey, Phil, um, so we've got Phil Castellano. Castellano, how do you say it? Castellano? Castellano's just fine. Well, how do you say it? Oh, actually, it's a Spanish name, so it's Castellano. Castellano, okay. I was going to say Spanish, that. Spanish, the double L sounds like a Y. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. And, and you are, and I saw you said you went to school, UC Irvine, and so I'm I'm literally 10 minutes away from Irvine right now. I'm in a place called Laguna Hills. So oh, okay. I, I don't know where you, where are you located currently? I'm actually located in Garden Grove, three miles away from uh, Disneyland. Nice. Well, you're, yeah. you're just, you're darn, darn near neighbor. So we've had quite a few uh, Californias, like my neighbors on the show that I don't know. We had, we had uh, Dr. Angel Stanton on the other day, who's just migraine work and she's up in Anaheim or Anaheim Hill. Oh. So we're all in the same day. We have That's, to have a big, a big HPO podcast meetup at some point, maybe. Yeah. Cause I, I used to be in uh, Newport for a while. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely knows where that is. So, so Zach, let's, uh, so give us a quick just intro for people that haven't heard of you or met you before. Just kind of give us a little bit of your background and then we can get into some, what I think is going to be some very interesting topics. Sure. Well, I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll tell you how I got into medicine and then I'll tell you how I got into, um, what I do now. Uh, back in high school, I was actually a, a long distance runner, track and cross country, not thousand. At least my coach thought I, you know, I could make a run of it. And uh, so that, those were my plans. Unfortunately, my senior year, I ended up with a partial Achilles tear at the beginning of the track season, right before, right on the actual scrimmage meet. So that was the end of that dream. So after that, I said, you know, I'm going to, being competitive and all, so, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do medicine. I'm going to go pre-med. So uh, I did that. And I did it for a year. And I thought, boy. I don't know if the squeeze is worth the juice. It was just too much time, too much effort, and all my friends were out having fun. And so I, I, I went, I think I, the time I went to computer science, I said, you know, forget it, this is too much. And I did okay, but I, it was just, it was a lot of work. And, uh, you know, I was doing it for all the wrong reasons. Uh, but unfortunately, um, during that time that, I, that I, uh, I went computer science, my mother actually came down with cancer. And uh, I was, uh, I, uh, I went to all of her appointments. I, you know, being the college kid and, and you know, since I was pre-med, everybody said, you know what, you should go and help her out. And my mom didn't speak English. So it was, uh, it was a, a little bit tragic. It was, it was difficult to see, um, you know, we, I didn't really know anything. And uh, just the, seeing the whole system from that perspective was, was, was tough. And, you know, at the end of it, things, um, things didn't turn out well. She passed. And uh, so that was, uh, that was rough. And I was talking to a friend of mine and I said, you know what? Um, I could do better than that. You know, I, um, she, was, she was dismissed a lot. I mean, it was, just, it was just, it was a sad thing to see. But I figured I could do better than that. And so um, the, 
those friends of mine were pre-med and they talked me back into going to into pre-med and so i did and uh it's different when you're motivated because you know i was behind um and so i had to like double up in my class to do all that stuff and uh i remember one finals week i went eight hours of sleep. for the whole week I, I slept for eight hours and um I did really well. And it's just amazing what you can accomplish when motivation is there. So um, that's how I ended up as a, as a family medicine doctor because I wanted to be in the front lines. I wanted to be the guy, right, to, you know, see disease and treat it and take care of it. And so that's how I chose family medicine. Unfortunately, that's not how really the system is set up. So I, I ended up at Kaiser. I did a Kaiser residency and then, I did a Kaiser, uh, um, you know, you just kind of get taken up into the system. And so I became a partner at Southern California Kaiser. And uh, being bilingual, I was given pretty much every diabetic patient in Orange County. And <laughs> that, was my, that was my life, one diabetic after another diabetic. And back then, our appointments were 15 minutes. And so uh, the nurse takes, you know, roughly eight to 10 minutes to do her thing on the computer, get all the drugs put in, uh, because that's the time when we're getting computerized. We're going on a medical, uh, um, electronic health record. And so she would take up about 10 minutes of, of the patient's time, and now I was left with five. And you have a diabetic who's got a, you know, they're on 10 medications, they're coming in for 10 different problems, and uh, you got five minutes. And I did that for a while, and I wasn't doing anything. I wasn't changing anybody. I wasn't curing anything. And I would sit, you know, after work, I was, even during lunch, I would sit in my desk and look outside a third-story window out in the parking lot and think, you know, there's got to be a better way than this. I'm having no impact. None whatsoever. I'm just pushing drugs. If you don't have a drug, I mean, if, if you don't have a problem I can give you a drug for, you don't have a problem, you know. And that's kind of how we were taught. And it just didn't make sense. And so... um I came across this, um, I was actually watching TV one day, and uh, I came across 60 Minutes of all things. They were uh, interviewing the guys from Cenogenics. And uh, I don't know if you, you guys are aware of what Cenogenics is. It was the first anti-aging clinic or institute that popped up back in the, the early, well, the late 90s. And uh, they were talking about using testosterone and growth hormone to treat and prevent disease. Now, I knew about the stuff performance because I have a, you know, I follow bodybuilding. So I, I knew steroids from that perspective, but I didn't think, I had never thought about steroids as a preventative or as a, you know, protective measure. And that's what these guys were talking about. Like, wait a minute, how did I miss that information? How can no one ever talk about that? Because they put up some of their stuff on the internet back, uh, they were trying to make their case. And so... A lot of the information they had, they would put online. And being curious, I actually looked up all that stuff. And now, the claims were kind of really out there. I, I, I couldn't believe what they were saying. So I got the information. I looked at their, one of the good things they did, every slide that they put up, or every lecture they gave, there was a footnote with the research paper. So I started researching all the articles. And holy cow, they weren't, they weren't lying what they said was exactly what was on those papers. And so 
they started doing IRBs and they started putting on information on some of the results they were getting. And it was pretty amazing stuff. Now the problem was now, once you see, once you, once you open your eyes to a new thing, you can't really close them again. I and mean, once you have a certain bit of knowledge, you just can't, you got to, my choices were, okay, I can sit here and retire a fat cat in 30 years, or at the time it was like 22 years. I was there for eight. Or I can do this, follow it, chase it, and see where it leads me. And that's what I decided to do. So I, uh, I left Kaiser and I, after um, looking into this stuff and getting all the papers, doing all the research, all that stuff. So that's when I, I left Kaiser and started doing this on my own. So that's how I ended up as a, as a age management or anti-aging doc, as you guys would call it. Yeah, I mean, it, I mean, I, I think it, there's a couple interesting points in there. I mean, one, and, and this seems to be, and this is something I saw in, in practice, you know, for whatever reason, we see a disproportionate number of people in the Hispanic community that seem to be affected by diabetes. And I saw that also with the Native American community. And, and I, I just think we, you know, there's obviously there's some genetic predispositions for that, but you know, and there may be some cultural things where, you know, we just select the wrong foods and we're just not eating a, a you know, a, a culturally or even a human appropriate diet and I, and I certainly see feel your frustration and I felt it too you know even though uh, you know family medicine is going to get the brunt of you know metabolic syndrome but I saw it even as an orthopedic surgeon every day all I saw was basically the, the, the orthopedic manifestations of the disease whether it was arthritis or tendon related pain and stuff like that and so you're absolutely right once you kind of you know once you sort of see what you can do with basically lifestyle measures and how effective they can be then then the uh, you know, the prescription prescription pad becomes less desirable for you if, if, if you, you know, I guess as a, I wouldn't say as an ethical person, but as somebody who has a real desire to truly help people, then, then you find that, uh, you know, I mean, and, and your frustration with the, with the system, with the 15 minute visits, you know, which really turn into about five or six minutes of actual patient exactly. physician time. And then there's EMR and coding and billing and, you know, and, and compliance and, and making sure you're, you're hitting your metrics and making sure you get X amount of your patients are on this drug. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a very, it's a very much pro pharmaceutical uh, system for sure. There's no doubt about that. And so, so tell us, you know, what, what are you doing, you know, kind of these days and how, to, how has your practice evolved? Well, um, let's talk about a little bit about diabetes and um, you know, back in medicine, uh, back in medical school, we had very little education on nutrition. And nutrition should be the foundation for diabetes. And, and regarding the Hispanic population, uh, the corn has been genetically modified so that it can, you know, tolerate more drought. So um, it's not, it isn't the same corn um, like it was back in the 70s and 80s. It's, it's, it's different. And the same thing with the rice. Rice has been genetically modified. So it can, uh, a, a bigger yield, more resistance to disease. That's why you start to see a lot of Asians now who are becoming overweight and obese. It's the, the basic staple has been changed. And so that's, that's led us down this pathway. Um, but um, a lot of what I do is, is try to get people to understand what diabetes is. Because if you don't really understand it, there's no urgency to change. You have to have a strong enough why, because I ask people to change what they eat. And if they don't understand the why, if it doesn't, 
um, makes sense to them, they're going to continue doing what their doctor said. And what the doctor told them to do is, is basically a slower death, really what it comes down to. Because uh, the ADA, the American Diabetes Association diet, is not going to get rid of diabetes. It just isn't, you know. Um, the current recommendations for the ADA, um, they used to mirror the USDA recommendations. And the USDA recommendations were, you know, uh, carbohydrates should be between 45 and 65 percent of, of your total calories. Uh, protein should be roughly, you know, um, 20 to 35 and I'm sorry, 10 to 35 percent. And then fat should be 20 to 35 percent of your calories. So a somewhat decent diet for your typical uh, person who's not insulin resistant. Now that those used to be the same things with, for the ADA, except they said, you know, focus on low glycemic foods and more low fat meat choices more more fish which at the time made sense to most of us right uh, diabetics are people who can't process sugar so you don't want to give them a high sugar load um, so you got to give them a low glycemic low glycemic foods um, the problem with that is that um, there's more to diabetes than just sugar you have a diabetic has elevated insulin and elevated glucose and the insulin is also pro-inflammatory so you have to deal with both issues, and the ADA doesn't do that. Um, as of, I think, what, 2013, they changed their, they went very nonspecific. It's just my opinion that they don't put it anywhere, but it's my opinion that they, they understand that what they're doing isn't enough, but they can't take credit for it, or they don't want to take blame for it. So what they do is they slowly, gradually change the recommendations, and they went from specific standards to saying, well, there isn't really now a uh, specific diet for any one diabetic. It just depends on personal choice, which kind of is mind blowing because you used to make recommendations. Now you're just kind of leaving it up to, to the individual person, right? That doesn't help anybody really. And so it leaves a lot of confusion. Um, but you know, if, if I was the idea, I wouldn't want to take credit for having ruined a bunch of lives you know, in the past as well. So I understand what they're doing. Um, you know, this has been known since uh, the 70s. If you do enough research on the web, you can actually find that the USDA knew that um, a high carbohydrate diet was going to lead people down to the insulin resistant route, metabolic syndrome, and diabetes. Uh, but the problem was that if you look at the documents, now the, the documents that I saw look real to me, but you never know, they could have been it could have been fake, right? But the documents I saw, um, they were posted on, on certain websites, um, said that uh, even though they were aware of that, they didn't want to necessarily affect the economy because big ag has a big lobbying group. And so those changes would be implemented slowly over time. Let's go. So let's, uh, Zach, we back on record. Yeah, let's, uh, yep. let's just kind of start into this topic about um diabetes in general and you can see i got a, a custom uh, yeah. insulin uh, background for us for the for the show because we know that, you know the traditional route for treating diabetes is a lot of drugs and, and exactly. more drugs until you end up on insulin and, and then and then you start chopping off your toes and toes and feet and ankles and, and and limbs and and i've done a lot of those which is unfortunate to see it's always a, it's always it's, i think it's a, it's an absolute failure of the medical system when we're, when we're chopping people's limbs off but Anyway, talk a little bit about what your experience is with, with diabetes. I know you wanted to talk quite a bit sure. about that and kind of walk us through. Why don't you do, why don't you walk us through the traditional 
diabetic the, the way you were taught because you said nutrition was not really emphasized and what you were what you taught what, as a day-to-day family uh you know general medicine pr- practitioner how you dealt with diabetes sure. as opposed to what you think is maybe the more appropriate way to do it these days so let's say someone comes in and they're um you know we always do a fasting sugar in the morning that's just a standard a basic lab that we do uh, a basic cholesterol fasting sugar kidney function you know, we, we try not to do a whole lot of things, right? Because it's the, the more you, the bigger you deep, the more stuff you're likely to find, right? And so we, you, you leave it cursory. This is, I'm, I'm not saying anything that isn't being done. And so anybody who's gone to any primary care doc in the HMO setting, they get it some just basic blood work, right? CBC, if you're male and you're over 50 PSA, may, they may check your liver, they may not. They'll do, you know, uh, uh, fasting sugar, cholesterol, kidney function, just basic stuff. And if the sugar comes up um, under 100, you're fine. Everything's normal. Well, the problem is even the sugar under 100 isn't necessarily normal. Um, as soon as it starts creeping above in the, in the 80s, you are now insulin resistant. And what that means is you're, you're probably looking at uh, metabolic syndrome, obesity, diabetes down the road. Um, Kaiser did a study and they came out with this uh, easy formulation to figure out your, your chances of becoming diabetic. And so you take whatever your fasting sugar is, subtract that from 84, multiply that times six, and that's your 10-year risk of get, becoming diabetic. So let's say your sugar is uh, 90, which is normal for most people. Oh, my sugar's fine. 90 minus 84, you get six, right? Six times six is 36. So you have a 36% chance of becoming diabetic in the next 10 years. But docs do nothing at that point. Okay, you're fine. See you next year, right? Next year they come back and say a couple years down the road, now the sugar's, you know, uh, above 100. Say it's 110 or so or 100. Now you're in that pre-diabetic range. Now now they tell you, okay, you're pre-diabetic, start eating a, a low glycemic diet, right? Start cutting out the sugars. But you're already pre-diabetic. So the problem with being pre-diabetic is that um, – you were probably 10 to 15 years insulin resistant before you became pre-diabetic. Now you can, now you can be another, it could be another five to 10 years of pre-diabetes before diabetes kicks in. So that's a long time for disease to occur. Your vascular systems can get messed up during that whole time period and no one's done anything about it or said anything about it. That's where the real damage occurs. And most patients have no idea that they're actually getting damaged, right? Because they feel fine. Diabetes is an internal issue, it's not external. It's not like you get sugar on the outside of your skin. It's all internal. So there's nothing to do. We'll check your sugars next year. You know, go on a low carb, I mean, I'm sorry, a, 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 a low glycemic index diet. And uh, we may refer them to the, the, the diabetic educator or take some classes on nutrition and cooking. And that's roughly what you do. You don't do anything until the fast sugar goes over 120, 125 whether A1C goes above, uh, you know, uh, 5.7 uh, or, or 6, uh, yeah, 5, 6.5 as, as far as being diabetic. So that's when you, medications come in. Now you can do something. Now I'm going to put you on metformin, you know, twice a day, uh, 1,000 milligrams depending on dose, myself with 500, but I'm definitely going to put you on metformin. And you're probably going to need a second drug because metformin usually isn't strong enough. Um, so then I'm going to go with sulfurea type of medication, you know, gliburide, glipizide, right? And then I'm going to max those out. 
um, to try to get your sugars on. At best, they may drop your, your sugars, your A1C by one or two points max. And then I'm a third, I have a third agent if those two don't do it. So the whole point is to get your sugars roughly under seven, hemoglobin A1C under seven. Um, and so we check that every three months or so. If that doesn't do it, then there's always a fourth oral agent or we can switch on over to insulin. That's what we do. And then on top of that, so you got possibly those four drugs, maybe five if you're on insulin. Now we got to also put you on cholesterol medication because that's standard protocol. If you're diabetic, you can get cholesterol medication because you die nine to 10 years younger than your typical uh, non-diabetic because of, uh, you have an increased risk of cardiovascular disease, right? And now you also got to put them on a uh, hypertensive medication because you want to protect the kidneys. So you, they put them on, a, on an ACE inhibitor because you, you got to protect the kidneys because you're diabetic, they end up with renal failure. So you got to give them, uh, you got to control the blood pressure, you got to protect the kidneys tonight. You put them on an ACE inhibitor or, um, you know, um, if, if they got uh, issues with that, then there's, uh, you know, other ones you can use like Cozar, it's a next generation um, medication. And sometimes you got to put them on diuretic uh, or other, you know, calcium channel blockers or beta blockers, depending on how um, non-responsive the blood pressure is. So now you have patients basically on 10 medications that didn't necessarily have to have any of them. That's a lot of medications. Just back when we used to write scripts, I would spend my whole 10, five, 10 minutes writing scripts for these diabetics while they're talking. <laughs> it took that long to give them 10. So computers actually help now. Now you can just click on the medication and it's, it's faster. But back in the day, you had to write out these medications by hand. So it was like a lot of medications for diabetics. So, and now you have to follow the liver, their cholesterol, their kidneys, and you got to see them every three, four months to make sure they're doing okay. And, you know, so that's the life of a, of a diabetic, you know? So, and unfortunately, once they're on medications that lower sugar, they always end up getting hypoglycemia. So they're always eating. What happens is uh, they eat a higher carb meal, um, they take their medication, the medication acts over hours and it drops their sugars three, four hours down the road, and now they're hungry. They gotta, they gotta raise their sugars up. So now they have to eat. So they're, they're, always, they're always going up and down with their fasting blood sugar, or, or their random blood sugar. They're always going up and down all day long. So they're, they're hungry, they're being damaged with, with a high sugar. They drops, they're hungry, they're being damaged with a high sugar. They're hungry, they're being damaged. So it's a lot of glycation that occurs internally, you know. And so that's how we manage diabetes typically. That's what family medicine docs do. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, if I can interject here, I, I think your point about the fact that being having quote-unquote normal blood sugar, you know, below 100 doesn't necessarily mean you are not developing diabetic pathophysiology. And, and I know we had Dr. Jason Fung on here really pointing at insulin, you know, saying, well, what's insulin doing? Because your insulin can be sky high, and, and that's really seeing it. And I think your other point about the, you know, the wide fluctuations that we see, and you point out that that is particularly glycating. And so I think when we see people with these huge postprandial Blood sugar surges that go up 140, 150, 170, 180, 200, 300 even sometimes. That is probably, you know, at least from what I understand, probably the more damaging uh, aspect of, of blood sugar, you know. And so, uh, you know, we, we very, and, and, and the, you know, it's like the diabetic package of drugs you, you, you said, you know, the metformin, the gliburide, the ACE inhibitor, the, the statin drug. I mean, they're all on this. And these all these drugs have side effects and interactions and they, they cause all these secondary downstream effects and diabetes 
in my understanding, is not a deficiency of drugs. I mean, that's not why people get type 2 diabetes. It's not some drug deficiency. And so we have to figure out what's, you know, what is, what is causing this? And so in your experience, um, what are you seeing as potentially, if you can even care to, care to postulate on the, on the causation of diabetes? Well, it's multifactorial. Um, but uh, now we're talking everything from, you know, um, insulin resistance, which is just the overexposure to insulin because we're just eating way too many carbohydrates, way too many carbohydrates. And your body can't keep up. Your pancreas just can't keep pushing. It, we're, we're redlining our pancreas. You know, we're beating it every, with every meal. And it's, it's, we're pushing it and it just can't keep up, right? Um, and one of the things about glycation, see, when you get these high sugar levels, what happens is that um, sugar can stick to anything without any enzymatic uh, reaction needed. It doesn't need any energy to stick. It'll stick to protein. It'll stick to lipids. It'll stick to your DNA. And so in what's supposed to happen is, yes, it'll stick around, but then as you go in between meals and you're active, uh, your sugar levels drop, and what's supposed to happen is supposed to come off of those molecules. It's supposed to come off the amino acids. It's supposed to come off the, the collagen, and it's supposed to be readily available for use. But in today's society, that never happens. So we never get those lows where we have to draw from those resources. So it stays on there. And if it stays on there for more than a couple of weeks, it, 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 it becomes a semi-permanent bond. It's called shift base. And if it's if it stays longer than that, then it becomes permanent. It becomes what's called an amidori product. And those are not likely to come off. The problem with an amidori product is if it comes across another amidori product, then they link and then it forms a permanent bond. And that's an advanced glycation end product. So basically, uh, you can think of it as Chinese handcuffs. Once, those two, once you put your fingers in, those, in that connector, they're not separating. And that's bound for life. And that will, that's what causes a lot of the micro and, va and macrovascular damage, even in the, your DNA. So, um, and your enzymes. Your enzymes are made of proteins. Uh, you know, your cholesterol is made of lipids and proteins. So all that stuff gets uh, glycated. And that's what causes the damage, even the nerve damage. Hey, Phil. Um, if I could just go back to something you mentioned earlier when you were kind of explaining the standard recommendations for dietary advice for, for diabetics, you had mentioned that one of the recommendations was to eat lean cuts of meat versus, I suppose, fatty cuts of meat. Yeah. Do you know what the, uh, the reasoning behind that is? Is that just like an attempt at yeah. uh, the fear mongering behind uh, um, saturated uh, fats? And I'm, glad, to I'm glad you asked about that. Here's the deal. Um, when we're in medical school, we're all told that um, saturated fat is the cause of heart disease, right? Mm -hmm. And diabetics are predisposed to develop heart disease. So the last thing you want to do is give a diabetic a high-fat diet. That's what we were told. So that's why we put them on a low-fat, low-glycemic index diet in hopes of preventing heart disease. The problem is what we were taught was wrong. And uh, I'll explain. We were bamboozled. Or we were – here's the deal. Um, the article came out in JAMA in uh, 2016. I guess this dentist uh, found the records um, uh, from the sugar. Re Every, you know, there are a lot of lobbying groups that, that um, Congress deals with. 
And one of them uh, was called the Sugar Research Fund. I don't know if it still exists or if it changes the name to something else. But uh, they found all the interim documents in one of their uh, old warehouses that this dentist happened to have bought. And she went through them and she published them. Actually, so it's in the, in the 2016 JAMA article. And they're talking about, they did ex exactly what the, what the nicotine lobby tried to do. You know how they went up to, to Congress and said, no, it doesn't cause cancer. Nicotine doesn't cause cancer. And they also were. Well, the problem was Congress and the American public didn't buy it. Well, the sugar lobby did the exact same thing, and we bought it. So um, in the 50s, um, after Eisenhower had his heart attack, people started getting really worried about heart disease, right? And so they started looking to the cause of heart disease. And at that time, there were two people that were, um, I guess, uh, spearheading the, the, the search. One was uh, Ansel Keys, which I'm, I'm sure most of you guys already know. He was, out of, he was a, a physiologist out of uh, Minnesota. And the other one was uh, John Yudkin. He was out of, uh, also a physiologist out of uh, Britain. And uh, Yudkin's uh, uh, theory was that sucrose was the cause of heart disease, that he had a stronger association with heart disease than saturated fat. And he had done some research on it, and he blamed sucrose for diabetes, uh, angina, heart disease, and all sorts of other stuff, and hypertension, I believe. So um, he was a big proponent of sucrose as the cause. Um, Ansel Keys thought otherwise. No, it's saturated fat because, you know, um, he spent some time in Italy and Naples, and I guess there's a lot of centenarians over there, and uh, they were all on a low-fat diet. The problem was it was after World War II, and there wasn't much food or, or money around, so they had to be on a low-fat diet. So he just assumed that was the, the, the low-fat diet was protective, and so therefore a high-fat diet must be um, the, what's causing heart disease. And so he put, he put a lot of research papers Indicating that, you know, uh, even though those research was, it was, it was cherry picked data that he used. But unfortunately, the, Ameri uh, the American Heart Association, uh, or, I'm sorry, the American College of Cardiology accepted his, uh, his uh, uh, theory that uh, saturated fat led to elevated cholesterol, which led to heart disease. And so that became the main uh, proponent of heart disease back in the 60s. Now, the problem was that there was evidence to the contrary. There were all these uh, papers that were coming out saying, no, there is no association between saturated fat and heart disease, all the way back to the 60s. I mean, they, there were studies that were pretty significant that were just got ignored, you know? Mm -hmm. And then in the 70s, uh, McGovern, uh, Senator McGovern, did the McGovern report, which, you know, he was a, the chair, on, uh, uh, he was chairing a, um, uh, uh, well, they were looking into, into poverty and they ended up kind of, um, doing an evaluation on, you know, um, on, uh, on nutrition and health. And so um, they accepted Key's recommendations as far as, you know, what a healthy diet should look like. And that's where the food pyramid started kind of evolving from. And so um, that's how we ended up with a, you know, 25% grains and, and, uh, and uh, starch, 25% uh, protein and uh, um, 50%, you know, uh, non-starchy vegetables and fruits. That's the current ADA recommendation. So it's kind of evolved into that over, over time, despite the fact that uh, people all along have been saying, no, that theory doesn't make any sense. You know, there's too many holes in it. It, does, it, it makes no, no sense at all. Um, back in 87, um, 
the um, Framingham Heart uh, study came out, 30-year uh, data, and it showed that saturated fat uh, was associated with heart disease up until the age of 50. After 50, if your cholesterol, um, it was cholesterol associated with heart disease up, up until 50. After 50, there was no association. As a matter of fact, if your um, cholesterol dropped after 50, your incidence of uh, heart disease went up. Um, but that's not what they wanted to hear, so they kept digging, right? <laughs> so that's why uh, the Framingham study is going on over 60 years now. It started back in the, the late 50s. It's still going on. They're still looking for that, that one proof. And so that was the 50s. In the 60s, they, I mean, we've known, or it's been known that um, they've done trials where they'll run, you know, um, saturated fat diet, 80 grams of saturated fat with 80 grams of olive oil or 80 grams of um, corn oil. And uh, um, despite the fact that the olive oil and corn oil groups couldn't sustain that much uh, intake, they were down to like, I believe, 60 uh, 60 grams at the, at, on the 48 grams at the time. Um, at the two-year mark, um, the mortality or the survival rate was 75% uh, um, for the saturated fat group. It was 55% for the olive oil group and 52% for the corn oil group. So if you really want to do someone a, a disservice, you really want to harm somebody, you give them corn oil. And that's a big producer, you know. Corn oil is very, very uh, toxic, uh, it, it, at least it's very inflammatory, uh, the way it's processed. Yeah, you know, what, what you said is really interesting. I think we've had a few podcasts recently where we've gone on a bit of a history lesson with where some of this information has come from historically. And, you know, one topic that came up that kind of works parallel with what you described with uh, Ansel Key stuff was uh, the, the study on the Okinawans in, in 1949, where they looked at their diet and they just happened to forget to let us know about the decimation of the pig population right before that study took place uh, during the World War. So, so it's like you look at someone who's 60 years old in 1949 from Okinawa, it might look like they have a very low meat, very low fat diet, but in reality, the majority of their life was uh, you know, rich in things like pork. And uh, you kinda, it, it's, it's something we talked about with Bart K that we had on where it's in some cases, it's not that these studies that we're seeing are necessarily like deviant or flawed to the core, but it's only one piece of the story. And we're, we're not seeing the other side. We're seeing some of these, these other studies going to kind of get put, put away and they don't see the light of the day or they don't get published. And then we say, for example, we see these four studies that, in, that, that show causation with one thing, but there's like, maybe 15 other ones that show the opposite that just never get into our hands. And that's the other piece of the puzzle that we're not getting to see. Yeah, actually, uh, Ufe Ravenskov, he actually, uh, he, he talks about this. And uh, according to his data, um, there's been as many reports showing positive as there are showing a negative association. Um, the problem is that the ones that show a uh, uh, positive association get played out six times more than the ones that don't. So we have a tendency to, to ignore a lot of stuff, even though it's, it's fairly uh, equivocal. And um, so um, you were talking about the, some of the Japanese studies. Uh, uh, here's the one that comes to mind. Um, um, it's called the JLIT study. I don't know if you ever heard of it. Japanese uh, lipid intervention trial. Uh, they looked at uh, cholesterol levels and mortality. 
And what they saw was that, um, you know, they treated them with mevacor, they dropped their cholesterol down significantly. What they noticed was that, well, there's two major studies that they, they did. Uh, on one, um, the people who had the cholesterol levels of uh, the JLET study showed a U-shaped uh, survival curve. And the people with the lowest death rates had cholesterol levels between uh, 193 and 228. And uh, which is, you know, Pretty significant because you know at, at the time cholesterol was you know the setting was set for 200 and now it's it's kind of been blurred out and we don't follow total cholesterol anymore. Uh, but there was another uh, uh, study by a research named Nagel NAGO and what he found was that um, similar result, results uh, survival rate was best at roughly 193 to 228. But one other thing that he's noticed was that if the cholesterol dropped below 160 you were roughly six times more likely to die from heart disease and three times more likely to die from uh, suicide. I'm sorry, no, from cancer. So when we start messing with people's cholesterol, we really start seeing some pretty significant findings because it's an, it's a, it's an essential component of life. You can't live without cholesterol. You know, aggression goes up, depression goes up, Suicide goes up when your cholesterol levels drop below 160. If your cholesterol level drops below 140, you can't really make testosterone. So, you know, that might explain why a lot of vegans are, get angry quickly, <laughs> right? Because if you're not making progesterone, progesterone is a hormone, especially in, in, in women, it, it goes to your brain, it hits the GABA receptors, and it calms you down. It kind of acts like uh, Xanax. So without that, you're not calm, you're, you, you trigger quickly. Let me, uh, I'm not saying that's the cause, I'm just saying. Hey folks, Human Performance Outliers podcast is growing. And due to the growth, we are looking to take on some new sponsors. So if you feel like your company or organization would be a good fit for our audience, please do not hesitate to reach out to hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. Yeah, yeah let, me, let me just interject a couple points here. Uh, you know, the point about glycation, and I wrote a... a, a article on glycation a couple of years ago for a place called Break Nutrition, so I'm pretty familiar with okay, the advanced glycation end products. You talk about the amatory and the ship bases and stuff like that that form. And, and we, we go on to see that, you know, the advanced glycation products are, you know, a step beyond just a simple glycation, which we see with the hemoglobin A1C. And so we see this, you know, advanced tissue glycation that's occurring. Um, interesting to me, is the fact that fructose is much more potent than glucose at actually causing glycation. So when we have a diet that contains a lot of fructose, and most of us get it through sucrose, which is a, which is a comp, you know, which is a you know a, bi, a disaccharide of, of, of glucose and fructose combined. And so we're getting a lot of sugar in the diet. We're eating a lot of fructose. Fructose is more glycating. You know, uh, someplace some people estimate twenty times more glycating than glucose. And so that may be an issue as to why some people that are on a diet that maybe isn't high in sugar, but still has some glucose in it via starches, like, you know, people may argue that, you know, Japanese or Asian people eat, you know, some, some rice and, and they've got some glucose in their system and they're not developing all these heart disease, but when we, when we inject sucrose and then, you know, then that might be even more problematic via the, via the higher levels of fructose. And, and Certainly humans have eaten fructose for a long time. I mean, I, I don't discount the fact that we would have eaten some fruit if we had opportunity to it. I just think it wasn't that opportune. It was seasonal. It was much less sweeter than we have it today. 
Um, and then your point about the corn oil, and, and we can extrapolate that the soybean oil and canola oil and, you know, all the various different industrialized, you know, hexane-derived, you know, multi-step, highly refined oils that are, that are in our diet now are, are certainly leading to not only advanced, you know, advanced uh, lipid endpoints, because we've got, you know, or advanced uh, peroxide, you know, uh, lipid peroxide endpoints or end, end, end products, rather. So we see those things happening as well. And I think it's just a common, you know, as you said, it's multifactorial. There's a combination of things, you know, you know, we can, we can point to smoking and not exercising and too much alcohol and not enough sleep and too much time staring at a screen is all that, but the food is still central in my view, I think the very central, central aspect of it. So let's, let's fast forward on to, um, you know, because we can talk about papers all day and, and, and you know, you, we can, we can point to a lot of papers that support yeah. our position and we can point and, 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 and conversely, there are a lot of papers that you can point to that don't support the position and it's, it's, is it epidemiology? What's the methods, you know, what can it actually tell you? Can it indicate causation as a hazard ratio extremely low? Is it high? Is it, is it even meaningful at all? And I think there's a lot of meaningless data out there, quite honestly. I think in my view, most of the nutrition research doesn't tell us really anything. It's hypothesis, hypothesis generating at best, but then we don't do the randomized control trials that we need to do. And the problem is people will say, well, it's too expensive. It's too difficult. Therefore, let's settle for this inferior science and, and, and try to, you know, try to make money off is what ends up happening. And that's why I think you see this, you know, this sort of uh, promotion of particular studies that, that, that sell more drugs. And we see the ones that, you know, that may not indicate that they kind of be they're on a back shelf. And they don't get published or something like it. But let's talk about. So what do you do today? How do we okay. treat diabetes today? How do we treat sick people? What is it? What works? Well, here's, here's what they should do. Right, because a diabetic has, like you said earlier, they have high insulin and they have high sugar levels. So you want to give them a diet that will predominantly not affect those two values. Right. The problem is, um, carbohydrates do both. Carbohydrates raise insulin and they raise glucose. So that's the last kind of thing they should really be on. Now, so the question is, well, how, if that's the problem, uh, is there a number they can eat? Is there a, a portion of carbohydrates that's okay? And uh, there actually is. Um, now, so if, if you want to keep carbs low, then you have two other things you can look at. Uh, protein and fats. How much of those should they have, right? Well, um, based on a 2,000 calorie diet, most people can't really eat more than roughly – 20 to 25 percent of the calories from protein. They're your standard person, roughly you know 100 to 125 grams of protein is kind of their max that they can eat in real food. So then that leaves you roughly 50 percent or a thousand calories in in fat. And how's a a, a diet that's 50 percent fat? Uh, is, is that tolerable? Is that harmful? Well, most studies say that it's not. All the all the low carb diets are typically 50 percent. And when you look at uh, when you compare them to a low carb diet, the parameters always seem, the cholesterol parameters always seem to improve on a uh, 50% uh, caloric diet. So ideally, they should roughly be on a high fat, high protein diet. Now, as far as how much carbohydrates can they have, here's what uh, the research shows. Now, they've actually done this where they put people on uh, a diet that's 20% carbohydrate and they do just fine. Their A1Cs drop to normal. So the diabetes seems to resolve. So it drops about two point uh, more than others. So they've actually done, the papers are out there and no medication required. And that's what I do with my patients. 
basically I try to get them to a 20% carbohydrate diet. The problem is, you know, they're carbohydrate addicted. Uh, I would love them to have less, but I, you know, there are studies that show that, you know, when you compare a low carb to a high carb diet to a standard American diet, um, you know, most people will go on a vegetarian diet and they last roughly three months and then they switch. They end up on a sad diet. The same thing with the, uh, the low carb guys, the, the Atkins type diet. They always end up, it takes them longer, it takes them roughly about six months. Uh, but then they always end up somewhat in, in a standard American diet. So, you know, we've got to have a, a happy place for these guys so they can feel, so they don't feel like they're completely um, going to one extreme and unhappy. And so the magic number really is about between uh, 20 and uh, um, roughly 30% carbohydrates. That's, that's the sweet spot. Uh, because at, at those levels, you still have an impact on A1C. The closer you get to 30, the less of an impact. The problem is the closer you get to 20, uh, you know, it's a 50% or so um, dropout rate. So, you know, if you want to get a bigger group, you got to give them a little bit more carbohydrates. So when I put people on my diet, I usually give them off 25% carbohydrates because I don't want them to completely uh, let it go. So that seems to be um, the actual numbers if you're, if you're diabetic. Now, in that 25%, you know, we... Um, ideally, you want them to have um, low glycemic, you know, starchy vegetables and grains seem to be okay. I, I prefer they don't eat a lot of fruit, like, like you mentioned, because it gets converted to fatty acids really fast. And, uh, and uh, they also glycates at a 10 times the rate or 20, as you mentioned. So, yeah, that's typically what I do with my patients. It's really interesting. It seems like there's uh, like this balancing act between what would be ideal versus what is kind of achievable or adhered, adhered to by the individual. And when you get down to some of those kind of classic ketogenic levels, it does seem like there's some folks that are like, have no problems sticking to that and they love it. And maybe that's just a time to kind of like really let that type of a process really set in. But when you're dealing with someone who's you know, already got type two diabetes, like they don't, they probably don't have a whole lot of opportunity to just like goof around and figure out if it's right or not. They need something that they're going to be able to adhere to. And um, from my experience, you know, the 20% carbohydrate intake, like that just really gives you a lot more flexibility in terms of like being able to, I guess, I don't want to say get away with a mistake, but I mean, that's really the probably the way most people are going to look at it. If you can have 20% carbohydrate versus like less than 5%, you know, you make that mistake and you don't beat yourself up over it because you've got some wiggle room to kind of adhere to it still at that point. Yes. I've actually put people on carnivore, um, mm -hmm. um, especially the bigger guys. I got, there's people, you have to kind of know the patient, but there, there are patients that some patients are just all in when they do a thing, they just go all in. And those people do really well on carnivore. Um, you know, uh, but they're not, they're, they're, they're few, unfortunately. I would prefer, you know, keto, carnivore, those would be, those are all great diets for someone who has diabetes. But, you know, like I said, a lot of diabetics are diabetics because they have a tendency to really overdo the, the carbohydrates. There's almost, it's like an addiction, you know, mm -hmm. and, then, and, and unless you really motivate them and explain to them, 
the reason why you need to change, they're just not, I mean, they're fighting their own nature in, in, in a sense. So they gotta be really motivated, they gotta be highly motivated. And that's part of what I do. I, I you know, listen, okay, this is what's coming, this is what's coming. And so, because they, they have a tendency to put that in the back burner. I don't wanna think about it, right? Today is more important than five, five years from now. So if they're highly motivated and they're all in type of people, I've had people have dramatic weight loss on carnivore and, and keto as well. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. And it obviously, it, it pleases my heart to see more and more physicians, you know, being open-minded enough to put people on, on you know, on a meat-based or carnivore diet because I do think it can be very effective, particularly for things like metabolic disease and diabetes. It's almost a no-brainer. And, yeah, you're right. I think a lot of guys, you know, you tell them go eat a bunch of steaks and, and they're pretty happy. And so, you know, it's, it's uh, you know, if we've gotten past the fear. Well, you know, and, and so let me ask you with regard to that because a lot of you know, even physicians, so in fact, in fact, majority of physicians will say that's a bad idea because of the, uh, you know, concerns around uh, cardiovascular risk, the concerns about colorectal cancer. Um, what are, you know, what are your thoughts and how do you sort of, how do you, you know, if you tell a patient, hey, I want you to eat, you know, a bunch of meat every day for three months or six months or whatever, and they come back to you with, you know, they, they look at you like you've got a third eyeball because they're probably, it's the opposite of what they've ever been told. How do you, how do you, how does that conversation go with you? And, and let me just, just, just as an aside, because I assume you're in a practice now where you have more time where you can actually spend some time talking with these patients, because it's not a five minute conversation, no, believe me. Not, no, uh, my, yeah, typically um, the way I've set up my practice is I have between an hour and two hours to talk to each new patient. Follow-ups are typically uh, 30 minutes to an hour, depending on how many issues we, got, we, we need to talk about. And we always address nutrition at each appointment. It, nutrition is basic. That's step one. And so um, they, they're probably tired of me saying it, but it, it's, it's me. It's, I don't have a nutritionist giving them the information. We go over the data. For example, um, I sent uh, Zach some, some tables that the, I go over with my patients. Uh, when I'm telling them, you have to eat more fat, you have to eat more protein. And in regards to the, and we can go over those in, in a little bit, but in regards to um, uh, colorectal cancer, we go over that as well because there's no, there's no sense in telling someone to do this and then they end up with uh, colorectal cancer or they end up with a heart attack, right? Now, those things will happen regardless, right? But they're just less likely. Um, as far as the uh, um, World Research Cancer Fund, that data isn't, isn't very good. And you know, they've done all these meta-analysis. You know, it, the Epic Oxford uh, showed that there's no difference between vegetarians and uh, omnivores when it comes to colorectal cancer. Or, you know, um, they also showed, uh, actually, here's something else that was interesting. Um, they, uh, they, back in 99, they put out the preliminary data, the research. And in that, and in that there was a category for diabetic deaths. And there were more diabetic deaths in the vegetarian group than there was in the omnivore group. Interestingly enough, when the, all the data was put out and the official paper came out a, three or four years later, or like almost five years later, the diabetic category had been removed. And what was put in place was endocrine disorders. So now the diabetic data was hidden in the endocrine disorders. <laughs> it was still higher than the, than the uh, omnivore diet, but you couldn't see how many people died from diabetic related complications. Like, well, that was, that was, you know, you guys can make what you like of that, but you know, I would like to have seen that data. 
you know, um, and same thing with uh, the colon cancer. Um, Epic Oxford showed no association. Oddly enough, uh, Epic Italy showed um, that there was increased risk of colorectal cancers in the vegetarians. And a couple other studies showed that uh, it's the high glycemic carbs that are more associated with colorectal cancer. The health professional studies, the women's nursing study one and two, both showed an association with glycemic load and colorectal cancer. So it's actually, if you think about it, and if you look at those data tables I showed you, it makes sense because carbohydrates are highly inflammatory. So, you know, it's inflammation that leads to disease. Inflammation, glycation, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, I think when, we, when it comes to, and I, I've made this point, you know, there, if we get too reductionist, you know, and we look at the World Health Organization's data saying that colorectal cancer, you know, imparts a 17% relative risk, which is you know, only about a 1% absolute risk. So it's really kind of very small. And again, that's well below the threshold for causation where we'd like to see 100% increased risk, you know, you know, as per the Brad, one of the Bradford Hill criteria. But I think, you know, that your point is that there are many, many factors that, that predispose us for risk for colorectal cancer. And among those are chronic inflammation, uh, hyperinsulinemia, you know, obesity certainly predisposes us for that. And then having, uh, you know, certain GI disorders like uh, inflammatory bowel disease, such as Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. And so I think when you take the overall package and the overall picture and, and, and put out a risk profile and you say that, you know, by, by me being obese or me having my insulin out of control or me being inflamed, that's going to be much, much more relevant to me developing colorectal cancer than, than a mere 17% relative risk. You know, when you look at the studies looking at around, you know, obesity and some, something like that, uh, hyperinsulinemia, inflammation, we start seeing relative risk numbers in the, in the hundreds, 200, 300, 400, 500, 600%, which puts to shame this minor 17% relative risk elevation. And, 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 I, and, I, and I question how that was done. The methodology that was used to determine that is, is, is not very convincing in my view, even though the World Health Organization put that data out there. And, you know, as some people know that the IRC panel that convened to do that was composed of a high percentage of vegetarians and vegans. And there was a lot of, it was no, it was by no means the unanimous decision or significant. Yeah, there's a lot of bias. A lot of bias in that stuff. And uh, so anyway, that is an interesting topic, but I applaud you for being open-minded enough to try that. So tell me about the results you're getting with the patients. What are the results like? How do, and how does that make you feel as a physician? I mean, what's the difference between five years ago and today? This is what medicine, this is what medicine should be, right? Someone comes in with a problem, and I, I take a functional medicine approach to things, right? Um, beforehand, a patient would come with a problem, and if I had a pill for that problem, then I could help them. Right. Unfortunately, the only time we ever cured anything was when we prescribed antibiotics. Right. Anything under antibiotics, we're not curing. Even thyroid conditions or anything, we're just kind of uh, treating the symptoms. Right. Um, so nowadays, when they come in, now you, you try to find the underlying cause. You, a functional medicine approach, basically, you look at the body and you say, okay, what went wrong and try to fix that so that it can auto regulate and auto correct. Your body wants to repair itself. Right, so um, that's what we do. And in regards to patients, um, obesity is, you gotta really treat obesity. That's, 
uh, you can do everything in the world and if they're not losing weight, bad things are sure to happen. So that's why I'm, I'm, I'm a big hound on, on, on obesity um, because here, here's, here's what I tell them. You take your typical patient and I say, look, if you, if, you, if, you, if you become obese, you're probably insulin resistant. If you're insulin resistant, you're probably gonna become diabetic. And if you're diabetic, you're gonna be put on uh, all these medications. Now, the problem with all these medications is they have side effects, you know, and they're not guaranteed to really help you live longer. Even cholesterol medication, uh, there was a paper that came out in, in, uh, in JAMA 2016. As, um, one lady, uh, she uh, got all the, all, the, all the data from all the trials that showed mortality. And she looked at the average uh, survival time for primary and secondary prevention. Any idea what it was? Not off the top of my head, go ahead, tell me. I know, I was shocked, I was shocked. <laughs> primary prevention, you live three days longer on statins if you take it for five years, because most of these trials are usually go five years. So primary prevention, three days. Secondary prevention, four days, median life, uh, uh, extension. So you're going to live that many more days if you take those medication for five years. So um, you had, yeah, I think you had a cardiologist on recently who was giving the numbers needed to treat on, on, on lipids, lipid medications. Yeah, I think it was probably either Nadir Ali or, or I don't know, Brett Sheer, one of those guys. Sure, I think it was Sheer. I, 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 saw, I saw those this weekend. I was like, I better see what these guys are talking about. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, you know, um, the numbers needed to treat for cholesterol medication is like uh, um, 217 to prevent one non-fatal MI or stroke. And uh, the numbers needed to treat to get one adverse outcome is 204 for a side effect. So you're more likely to get a side effect than you are to prevent something, right? Now, one side effects of cholesterol medication is diabetes. <laughs> Which, and the problem with diabetes is you live 10 years less. So now like, okay, like I used to, um, I used to ask my friends back, uh, you know, colleagues back when I was a Kaiser, and I would ask them, hey, listen, if, this, if these cholesterol medications really do what they're supposed to do, if they prevent heart disease, right? Um, but the studies are coming out that there's an increased risk of either diabetes or cancer. Are we really doing patients a favor, right? Okay, you're not gonna die of a quick heart attack. And now since heart attacks are off the table, now the second leading cause of death is cancer. Are we really doing people a favor? Now you gotta go through chemo, radiation, maybe surgery, miserable two, three years. And they would be like, hmm, they wouldn't know what to make of that. That was just, that was just me you know, thinking outside, you know? Uh, so these medications have side effects, unfortunately. You know, and they're real side effects. And, you know, although we may think we're doing something great for somebody, are we truly doing that, right? There's way better medications that can do what the cholesterol, well, what the statins do. For example, testosterone can do a lot of what they do. Testosterone is anti-inflammatory, which is why they use, they use statins for the anti-inflammatory effect. They, they really, they know it's not really a cholesterol issue, but they know it's anti-inflammatory. I'm thinking, well, you could use other stuff. Testosterone does that. 
You know, testosterone raises HDL, lowers LDL, does all the good stuff. But no one talks about that. No one uses that. So in my practice, uh, uh, diabetics, all diabetics, half of diabetics are testosterone deficient. And if, they're, if they have erectile dysfunction and they're testosterone deficient, then I put them on a, a, a trial of testosterone. And two things happen. One, their erections come back. Um, two, their sugars really get controlled. It helps. It really, really does help with, uh, uh, with glucose control. And I'm oftentimes able to get them off all their medication. Of course, diet is still primary. They still got to follow the diet. But yeah, it's, uh, it's amazing what we can do outside when, when, when you're not in a, a certain system that has protocols. And, and you know, these are, this is how you treat somebody. As an as a independent doc, I can do what's best for the patient based on what I see in their, uh, in their panels. Yeah, I mean, I think that's an important point. And I have, you know, to be honest, I've been critical with uh, some folks with, with uh, you know, the testosterone being used as a band-aid. I, you know, I, I don't personally take TRT. I'm 52 and I'm, I'm doing fine without it. I think most people, in my view, if they get diet uh, in order is, 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 and lifestyle can make a huge, huge impact. I do think that a lot of the testosterone, the clinical testosterone deficiency we see, whether it's free testosterone levels or just clinical function, because at the end of the day, we're worried about clinical function. You know, your testosterone levels becomes less important. You know, if it's high and you're still clinically, clinically compromised, you know, if you can't have an erection, if you have no libido, if your body composition is horrible. But I do think there is a significant component of metabolic syndrome, metabolic disease, diabetic pathophysiology that certainly, you know, causes, wreaks havoc in the rest of our endocrine system. And, and I think that, you know, the, the sex hormones are not, uh, exempt from that. And so I think by fixing the underlying metabolic problem in general, a lot of those things come back. And I applaud you for at least main, you know, admitting that, you know, you've got to make sure the diet is on point or it's wasting time. Because I cannot tell you how many patients I would have that what I would see for orthopedic issues and they'd be on, you know, testosterone replacement and they were still eating a garbage diet and they were still not doing what they're supposed to be doing. And they really had no benefit that I could see. I mean, they, and they would tell you, I don't, I can't really tell a difference. And I think it's because the physicians, you know, didn't take the time to, to do what needs to be done, which is the, the true lifestyle intervention. And, and then, you know, if, if you do have a subset of patients where testosterone, you know, might potentially benefit them further than it works, but it's, you know, I use this analogy that, uh, you know, and I'll, I'll, and I'll just use a different analogy. Like if I'm, if I'm talking about fixing somebody's knee, like if I was going to replace someone's knee and they were still metabolically deranged and damaged and, and you know, there's, there's, there's this raging inflammation going on. I liken it to, you know, making the decision to recarpet your house, your house while the house is on fire. You need to put the fire out first before you can make any progress. And so, you know, like I said, I think that hopefully more people realize that the foundation is diet, sleep, exercise, recovery, exactly. stress management, you know, not drinking to excess, not smoking. And then the drugs have a very small effect and, and, and potentially maybe they're even, you know, in many cases, a temporary bridge to uh, long, long lasting health. Um, yeah, the problem with the, a lot of testosterone use that I see is that it's given to people who aren't symptomatic. If you're not symptomatic, the benefits are significantly less. And uh, as far as not everybody who's on testosterone should be on testosterone. 
I think people get a, it's overprescribed. Um, now they've actually done trials where they've taken people who were uh, testosterone deficient, overweight or, or obese, or, and they got them to lose weight. Um, and the testosterone levels go up a little, but the symptoms don't improve. Those are the guys that benefit. Um, there's a subset of patients that don't respond uh, or have no symptom improvement with a lifestyle intervention. Now, those are the guys that then when you give them testosterone, that's a miracle. Like, wow, doc, that's, that's, that's the greatest thing ever. So that's the, sub, that's the correct subset of patients to treat, the ones that don't respond despite the lifestyle intervention. And so that's, that's what we do. Um, so let me let me ask you because we we've talked about what you do, but I want to know about your your compliance rate, your success rates. You know whether it's low carb, you know twenty five percent of your carbohydrates. How you, how are your patients doing successfully in sticking to you know these various diets, whether it's carnivore, keto, or whatever you're implementing? What what's been your your experience thus far, and what kind of troubles have you encountered, if any? <laughs> Holidays, <laughs> vacations. <laughs> they always seem to blow the holidays and vacations, but that's okay. Here's what I tell them, look, it's a long road, right? As long as you get this correct 75% of the time, you can have a 25% error. You know, if you can have a party, you can go have that cake, fine. Just the next day, tighten up the belt, you know. Um, and then I, I may also uh, include intermittent fasting in that because what happens is they get a overload of sugar and insulin. I want those, that, that sugar to come off those tissues. So I'll have them, you know, if they overdo it one day, I'll have them skip breakfast and, and just have lunch and dinner, or maybe even lunch if it was a really bad, uh, they, they really overindulged and just, you know, um, do intermittent fast next day, maybe one meal, maybe two, you know, but it would be a high protein, high fat meal. So uh, most understand, okay, there's going to be some leeway. 75% adherence rate is kind of what I see, you know, for the most part. And there's uh, some that, you know, they still see me, but <laughs> they just don't want to change or they have a really hard time adapting to a lower carbohydrate diet, you know. And a lot of that has to do with alcohol. They just can't stop drinking. You know, they hang out with their friends and they're drinking and they're eating stuff they shouldn't be eating. So that's, it's usually the, it's alcohol related stuff that prevents them from really um, uh, maximizing their diet. Do you, is your practice still significantly uh, a lot of Hispanic or Spanish-speaking patients? Are, is that still a, mar a large percentage of your patients? Actually, no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just wondering how this sort of this sort of dietary strategy goes over in that community. Um, you know, I, because I mean, obviously, some people are deeply attached to certain foods, and you know, uh, flour tortillas or corn tortillas, and you know, I mean, yeah. there, there's traditional Hispanic food. And I, you know, I don't want to insult anybody by trying to see what people eat, but um, do you find that when you deal with, with people, you know, of different cultural backgrounds that it's either more or less difficult to get this, this message across? It's hard. There's something that we discussed. Most of my Hispanics come in for weight loss. So, you know, and I explain insulin and glucose and, and glucose becoming a, a fatty acid. And I explain how they became obese. And so I basically tell them we have to, you know, uh, reverse engineer that process to get you thin. So once they understand why they got fat and 
they see that they're getting skinnier doing the exact opposite, then they have better understanding. But they have to have the weight loss. Otherwise, they're not buying it, <laughs> right? They have to see the proof. Once they see it, oh, okay. And then they adopt a low-carb lifestyle. But not until the weight loss happens. You know, or, or their friend or their neighbor or somebody, they saw somebody lose some weight, then they come in and they talk. Um, the, it's, the problem is it's ingrained in the culture. You know, it's, that's a staple. And, you know, you got to limit it to one or two tortillas a meal, you know. And I say, you know, if you have, if you have some for breakfast, don't have some for lunch or for dinner. You know, just you have to play with it. So it, it, it's, it's, it's difficult at times. Do you find that a, a uh, and let's just talk about, because uh, this is a real, very real concern for a lot of people, is, is cost. Do you find that cost of food to eat a low-carb, more nutritious diet is challenging for many people? Because, I mean, it's very easy to go to the store and, and get sodas and chips and a very cheap food. Uh, and, and that's why many people, quite honestly, that's why many people buy them just because they're inexpensive. Are you finding that, uh, and I don't know if you treat very many low-income patients, but, I mean, do you find that to be an issue as well? Yeah, I do. Because, um, you know, they're already paying for insurance, right? And now they got to pay to see me. And, and now I'm telling them to eat a whole different way. So, yeah, it, it, it is a concern for them. And, and so, um, uh, oddly enough, um, now it's, it's probably, um, you know, a lot of the Hispanic stores, because I, I, I go in and I look and I, I shop at some of these places, and their meat prices are actually fairly reasonable. I'm surprised compared to, you know, uh, your standard store. And then it's, it's huge portions. Um, yeah, I've been in, I think it was at El Super, I think, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. It's got some uh, up there. Is, is that what it says in, in, in Irvine? They've got yeah, there's a couple of them. There's, uh, yeah, there's a couple of chains. Yeah, I've been in there and I, I was surprised they had like Chuck Eye steak for like Two ninety nine a pound. I was like, "Holy cow, that's that's a good price." <laughs> and I mean, and, and we have sales, of, sales on beer. <laughs> well, yeah, I, you know, I'm not much of a beer drinker, but uh, I, 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 you know, certainly when I'm looking for meat, when I'm looking for a value, and that that's not a bad place to go. Yeah. And I think this is one of the things that, you know, I take a lot of criticism for, you know, because I think you know, there's people that saying, "Well, we should only be eating local grass fed beef." And that's the only thing we should do. But I think a lot of, for the reality for many people is they can't afford that. And I do think that, you know, we have to, to realize that. And I think that even the, 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 the stuff you could get inexpensively, you know, at many stores, including some of the, you know, Hispanic stores is fine for most people. My goodness. I mean, it's going to be so much better for you than the chips and the, and the Kool-Aid and the Fanta and, you know, all the stuff that, that you might otherwise be eating. So, I mean, yeah. goodness, I mean, yeah. I, I, I hate to see people, uh, dissuade people if, if that's what they can afford from doing that. Exactly. I would rather they eat that, even though it's, you know, it may be a lower quality or, um, you know, or uh, not as ethically raised, but uh, it, it will help their metabolic status a lot more. Yeah. I mean, that, and, and, you know, and this is a thing when we, when we really step back and we look at, you know, environmental impact, the healthcare system, you know, we think about going to the doctor, but the healthcare system puts out quite a bit of greenhouse gases. I mean, you know, the healthcare system is about 10% of the United States greenhouse gases. I mean, it's, it's, we don't even consider that as part of the equation, but uh, it, it potentially is. And so if you're not participating in the healthcare system, you get healthy and you never go to the doctor, never go to the hospital, you've 
basically, you know, done, done some of your part to be a good environmental steward. And so one of the, one of the ways to do that is to eat an appropriate diet or a healthy diet. And, and, you know, in my mind, uh, it's, it's a diet that's rich in animal products and low and refined processed foods and uh, real food, real food. Yeah, real food. I mean, there's always arguments about what's processed and what chemicals are bad, but I think most of us, you know, it's kind of like pornography. We know it when we see it and we know what junk food is when we see it and we, and, and trying to put an exact label on that is, is sometimes hard. But uh, I think that's, uh, you know, kind of a, just a, just an aside thing. Cause I think we, you know, we, we get so reductionist on, on trying to eliminate one thing. And this is what's happened in the agriculture industry. They've, they were told you got to reduce your water footprint, your greenhouse gas footprint, uh, you know, your, your feed footprint, you know, your, your, and they did that. I mean, the lab, the animal agriculture did that tremendously well. I mean, they've, they've, redu they've reduced the usage of those things by something like 25 to 30, 30% across the board over the last several decades. And, you know, because we've asked them to do that and, you know, much better than some of these other industries like, you know, mining and, uh, oil and stuff like that where they haven't made as much of an impact and so it's uh you know it's dangerously myopic to sit there and focus on one thing and say this is the only thing we need to work on when there's so many more variables it's so much more complex is what i've come to learn um zach what else should we ask about um no i think we've covered a lot is there anything phil you wanted to ch chat about yet that we haven't gotten into or? oh you know what phil i mean you had you had a, a little visual thing you wanted us to look oh, at yeah. you, can you show <laughs> it real quick uh, we, yeah. We, yeah, sure do, yeah we've got to do another podcast here yeah. in a little bit so I, I don't want to push you but we just got to we, we got to we can you know, i'll make it real i'll make i'll make it real quick okay can you guys see that okay. first screen right now oops i my i I'm not on screen anymore. Let me see. I can see. Yeah, you might have to re-maximize your screen it, it, when yeah. it goes on. It minimizes. Yeah, so. there you go. Okay, I'm back. Oh, oops. There you go. Okay. You see so, it? Yeah, I can yes, see the serum, see serum cardiovascular disease risk markers. So basically, uh, even up till now, when your doctor checks your cholesterol, he basically checks the top four things. Total cholesterol, your LDL, which is the bad cholesterol, the triglycerides, uh, your HDL, which is the good cholesterol, and uh, that's it. You know, and they make guesses about your risk, your risk of developing heart disease. But there's, let me, let me get rid of this little something here on my screen here. There's so many more uh, values that can be checked. You know, uh, LDL type B, um, that's the small particle cholesterol that gets underneath the lining of the basement membrane and leads to plaque formation. It, you know, it gets eaten up by the macrophages and becomes foam cells. The VLDL, that's a cholesterol that's put out by the liver and in the serum becomes LDL, the second one up on top. Your lipoprotein A, that's um, very similar to LDL, so it's atherogenic. Your ApoA1, that's uh, basically, it's a component of the HDL, uh, which, uh, you know, when you're at risk for heart disease, that drops along with HDL. And your ApoB and C, those are subcomponents of uh, the VLDL. So these are all kind of interrelated, and the only things, that go down are the protective ones, the HDL and the ApoA1. So this is what a really bad cholesterol panel looks like. This is what's called an advanced lipid panel or a cardiac IQ or a VAP or you know, a NMR uh, uh, lipoprotein profile. So there's so many more things you can, your doc can check. And then at the bottom you have a CRP, C-reactive protein, that, 
that's associated with heart disease and so is insulin resistance. So that's typically if, you're, if your lipid panel looks like that, you're at high risk of developing heart disease. So um, what I did was I just went through the scientific literature and I looked at um, what happens to all these markers when you have a high fat diet. And if you look at the next slide, I'm comparing on the, on the right are the original values for someone who was at risk of heart disease. And on the left are what happens when you eat a high fat diet. So people are afraid because total cholesterol goes up and LDL, LDL go up. So they go, oh yeah, it's bad for you, see? But what they don't realize is that triglycerides go down, which is you know protective. Your HDL, which is protective, goes up. LDL type A, type A is a big fluffy cholesterol. It's too big a, a, a cholesterol to get underneath the basement membrane, so it's not considered atherogenic. So that's protective. Your VLDL drops, which is a good thing. Your lipoprotein A drops, which is also a good thing. And your APOA1, which is protective, goes up. The APOA B and C also go up. So there is some risk of heart disease. That's why a lot of these studies show, some studies show positive association, some studies show negative association with heart disease and, 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 and fat. And then also on high fat diet, insulin resistance drops because fat doesn't stimulate insulin release. So that explains some of the mixed studies that we used to see. But if you go to the next slide, a long time ago, um, when they did these studies, they didn't, um, they didn't subtract the, the, the trans fats from the diet. See, trans fats are what the, the fats that are found in oils. And they're chemically different from the natural trans fats that uh, our bodies make, or animals make, or plants make. Uh, it's because they have the double bond on the wrong end, and so that's what it's called. It's, it's the transposition instead of the cis position. And so when that happens and we consume those uh, fats, we get a really uh, a high inflammatory reaction so because your body doesn't recognize them. So when you cook with these oils, this is what you tend to see. So I looked at all the research that showed trans fats and cholesterol profiles and their effect. And so um, the total cholesterol goes down. And that's why the government says, yes, use margarine, use vegetable oils, because look, cholesterol lowers. But if you look at the rest, it's all red, meaning every, everything goes up, e even at the bottom. Um, your inflammatory, inflammatory markers, CRP goes up, insulin goes up, endothelial dysfunction, which is you know the beginnings of atherogenesis, goes up. Interleukin six, that's a, a it's a marker of inflammation from fat cells, and tumor necrosis factor alpha. This also uh, a marker of inflammation. So basically, it's a big inflammatory response from the trans fats. They were never separated; they were all lumped in as a trans fat, and so. Um, if you think of them as evil twin brothers, the trans fats did all the bad stuff and the saturated fats got the credit for it. So that's why a lot of these research papers show that, you know, saturated fats are bad for you. But if you, if, if you, and, and this is kind of where most people uh, leave it at. They never really looked at the effects of carbohydrates. At least I haven't really seen any, anybody really attack uh, the carbohydrates as far as, you know, what do they do when it comes to heart disease? And if you go to the next slide, I'll, I'll show you what carbohydrates do. A, a carbohydrate-rich diet does the following. See, it lowers total cholesterol and LDL, so people say, oh, it's good for you, right? The problem is everything else goes up. Triglycerides go up, which are harmful. HDL drops, which is protective, so you lose your protection. LDL goes up, VLDL. So all the little markers, so the subunits, 
go up, and even insulin resistance and glucose, which are both inflammatory and cause damage. So when you, if you go to the next slide, when you line them all three, if you line the three, uh, there you go, and you, and you compare them to, on the left is the saturated fat group, right? They're trying to blame that for heart disease. The second one, that's someone with a really bad cholesterol pattern, someone that is for heart disease. The third one, that's the trans fats. And the one on the, on the right, that's the carbohydrates. So if you were just to look at that at a glance, there's very little green, little, very little protection other than when you eat a, sat a high saturated fat diet. And so this is what I show my patients as far as, okay, this is what the science says. And this is um, what we want you to eat because you have some protection over here. You got very little to none protection when you eat all this other stuff. I mean, that's a, that's a very stunning, you know, when you put it out like that, you know, and, and again, you're right. Most people don't, uh, you know, they don't get past the first four markers, you know, total cholesterol, LHCL, and triglyceride. And so it's, it's very important to realize that there are so many more factors. And I think, I think most lipidologists who are advanced don't even consider total cholesterol at all really anymore. I mean, I think it's just. No, that's, kind of they're, actually, they're stuck with LDL. Yeah, they're stuck on LDL and its subfractions and components, and, and and we didn't get into oxidized versus glycated LDL, mm -hmm. which is probably also uh, important when we when we talk about you know the potential for atherogenicity. But um, you know that's uh, that's just tremendously inform informative information. That slide I think is particularly helpful. Where does where can someone find you? Let me ask you because I'm you know you may or may not know I've started something called the animal animal based nutrition network .com. We're looking for yeah the providers that that are willing to treat and offer patients you know animal based nutrition models to help with with whatever condition they're in. So hopefully you'll be willing to be part of that. Of course, yeah. Uh, you know, what we do, we're compiling a list of, of people that, that that are supportive. So people, so patients that have resources. Do you do an online practice? Or are you strictly in patient in person, uh, or how does your how does your practice work? And where do people no, do people find you? Well, I'm actually I'm in Garden Grove. Um, we're there Monday to Friday. Um, our website is castellanomd.com, and um, our office email is castellanohealth at hotmail.com. That's also our name for Instagram. We have an Instagram about. Page is uh, Castellano Health, and uh, yeah, uh, you know we're easy to find. We're online somewhere, and uh, just uh, give us a call. It's, awesome. Uh, and Phil, we'll link that stuff to the show notes too, so people can go check it out, as well as that the the graph, the five page graph that we just went through. So folks on YouTube should see it, and they won't have a problem connecting those dots. But if you're listening on the audio version, know that all will either find a way to put it on the show notes or link to somewhere that you can see it. So we can kind of follow along as, as Phil goes through that. Cause I think that it is a pretty cool visual to see with it. Very good. Phil, Phil, thank you so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure. Thanks um, for having me. I wish you a tremendous success in your patient's success. And I'm, I'm, I, like I said, I applaud the physicians that are willing to, you know, step outside the box, step out the system, it's outside the system for the benefit of the patients. And I think as more and more people do this, I think, it's going to benefit more and more, more and more people overall. Well, the, you know, the system isn't working. It's not getting us anywhere, but kind of running around chasing our own tail and patients are dissatisfied. I mean, everybody comes sees me. They're just, the reason they see me is because they're fed up with their physician. Uh, and so it's, it's patient driven, you know? And uh, so basically we're just kind of trying to match those needs 
Um, but most patients are, are wiser and ahead of the curve um, when it comes to this stuff than their physician, unfortunately, because they have practice guidelines they got to follow. They got to follow all these societies and what they say, and they can't step outside the line. Otherwise, they get they get smacked. You know, so uh, it's I, I don't see this going away. Yeah, I mean, it's a market, it's a market driven economy. And I think we're, what we're going to see is you either, you know, react to the market. And I think the market is people that are fed up with not getting better and, and just being given one more prescription, or, you know, exactly. and one more side effect. And so good for you. Great to have you on. Uh, look forward to meeting you in person sometime since we're darn neighbors. So, uh, you know, hopefully there'll be an event we can kind of say hi. And uh, anyway, look forward to, to what you do, Phil. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media and checking out our websites. Links to those can be found in the show notes. Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.